Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Leisha here. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by the inimitable Mr. Jeff Barr. G'day, Jeff. How are you doing? Doing great, Simon. Really happy to be back on the air with you. It's good to have you here. I think we, we had to sort of pry you away from the keyboard where you've been feverishly pumping out blog post after blog post. Um, I believe during the reInvent season, you actually forego sleep altogether. Uh, I, I go for probably four hours a night, if four really, really good hours a night, and I'm, and I'm good to go and with, with a couple good breaks in the middle of the day to get some fresh air and make sure that my wife and my dog still know that I'm alive. <laughs> that you exist. It's, it's a pretty intensive process. I, I feel fortunate I have a little of insight into the, the lead up and all the things that go into it. And um, I'll just say it's not just about sitting at a keyboard and bashing out some fancy words. There's a, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that sort of stuff. So. Uh, it's fun to watch, but it's um, I'm glad you're getting a little more sleep now. It's totally enjoyable. And the, the thing that I love about my job is that I get to work with all of our dev teams and listen to them and learn from them and get a, a sense of, of what they're up to and the customer problems they want to solve. And then take their, their somewhat internal tech speak and turn that into something that our audience hopefully is going to understand and appreciate and get some good value from. Absolutely. It's a big form of, I guess, uh, Translation and communication, which is a good thing. I think so. So uh, so we're going to get together today and run through some of the things that have happened since the last update show. And as with many of these update sessions, it's a really interesting mix of kind of the super new and modern, if I can put it that way, and some old friends that have had some additional capabilities added to them. And one of the first ones I want to mention was um, uh, Elastic IPs in VPC. You can now tag them. Uh, and, and I think we're a big fan of tags, aren't we, Jeff? We like Everybody's tags. a big fan of tags. Our customers <laughs> make incredibly good use of them. And what I've learned from speaking to customers is that tags are not just an interesting optional feature. They're something that a lot of customers have built really interesting tracking and diagnostic and billing features around tags. And so the feedback I get from every customer is simply make sure that every possible entity inside of AWS ultimately has the ability to support tags. Exactly, exactly. So uh, VPC EIPs now have tags, which is very handy, which is a good thing. Another new thing that I think affects a a service that you make intense use of when you're not building Lego is uh, Amazon Workspaces. And we've got some new configuration options now. We do. And this is actually pretty cool because the basically what happens is that customers can now set up a new configuration for their workspace and reboot. And it's effectively like you're sitting at your laptop and you say, I need more memory or I need more storage or I need more cores. And you power cycle and instantly your, your laptop is, is more powerful because you, you need more resources or you're running on a budget and you want to, to, to scale down. But either way, you can effectively just reboot and get the configuration that you need. So instead of purchasing something once and being committed to it for the depreciable life of that asset, you now fine tune it to meet your needs on a day by day basis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. So you can switch between the, the value, standard, performance, or power hardware bundles. And um, why wouldn't you choose the power one if you could from time to time just to experience it? But you're right. It, it means you can kind of take a, a seasonal approach to your workspace uh, as and as when you need. And you can also increase the storage. And I think, as we all know, you always end up using more storage than you think. So it's nice to have that option, isn't it? Absolutely. And the, to me, one of the neat things is that you can get that additional storage effectively in place rather than one of the fears that you have when you own a laptop, you've got all these files on it. You're thinking, 
well, I could upgrade, but I've got to go through all this trouble of migrating and I'm going to miss something. I'm going to put something in the wrong place. And I, I think we've really taken a lot of that complexity out of the, the upgrade or migration equation. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the risk factor has been eliminated, which is a nice thing. Exactly. And I still now, remain a are... gigantic fan and continuous user of workspaces. Absolutely. I, I notice that all the time. A lot of members of my team have also latched onto it as well. It's really, really handy, particularly if you're on the go, seems to be. A, a it's so nice to have that same environment there. Every time, regardless of if I log in from my laptop or from my home desktop or from the office where I've got my zero client, I log in and instead of having to somehow fiddle with all three environments and make them the same and make sure I've got the same tabs and the same files, it's simply a window into the same environment. And that, that doesn't, it actually isn't, you can't realize quite how profound that is until you use it. And then you suddenly say, oh, this is, this is different than switching. I'm simply accessing and I'm always accessing the same thing. And it, it just feels materially different and a whole lot more efficient. And you're kind of like, how did I ever do it the other way in the past? You know? It is. And really interesting middle point between decentralization and centralization. It would, some things make a lot more sense where you have one instance of them in the center. And your your workspace where you're doing all of your important work, that belongs in the center. You don't want to worry about multiple copies of that with the ability for them to drift. Yeah, repl replication is never fun. Um, so one of the really cool announcements that took place at reInvent is a new service called Amazon SageMaker. And there's a couple of changes to Amazon SageMaker or improvements, but maybe let's step back and, and talk a little bit about what it is. Because you know, we were talking just before recording about the service because we're both big fans. And I think a lot of people associate it with machine learning and algorithms, et cetera, but there's a lot more to it, isn't there? That's right. So SageMaker is a, a couple different things. And on the surface, you basically have this notebook facility that uses an open source notebook called Jupyter. And with Jupyter, you, are, you enter some code, you hit enter or shift enter, I believe, and it evaluates that code in place. It then puts the results of that evaluation in the next cell of the notebook. And so you can proceed down through the notebook and you can evaluate each of the, the code snippets. If you want to make a change, you can go back up to an earlier one, make a change and reevaluate. So it's a really easy way to experiment and to, instead of having to, if you think back to the, the days of doing batch computing and you'd write, you'd write all your code and you would then have to submit it for compilation and processing and wait hours and hours and hours kind of the, the, the worst case for any kind of interactivity. And then we moved to more the online where it was basically kind of line-oriented back and forth. And then we went to the, the fully interactive. The SageMaker is this, this middle ground where it's line by line in the code entry, but you've got this graphical shell around it that I think makes it uh, a neat way to learn. You can definitely experiment with a lot of different algorithms. You can, you can build effectively production code in a line-by-line line fashion. One of the things that's actually a little bit interesting to me is we've really talked about SageMaker in the context of, of machine learning and AI, but nothing about SageMaker says you can't use it for simply learning how to write Python code interactively. It's actually also a great platform for collaboration too. So you can you can share these notebooks, you can communicate between them. But when I first saw it, it reminded me, of, remember when you studied maths in high school and the teacher would always be like, you can't just give me your answer, you've got to show me your work. <laughs> this I, is like showing your work. <laughs> I, I did very, very poorly at that. First, because I'm horrible at math in general. And second, because I have 
my handwriting even back then was horrible and it hasn't gotten any better with, with age. So I, I didn't, uh, I didn't I succeed the there. Handwriting is you. That's why I got into computers because I could type instead of write. Sounds good to me. One thing I'd like to actually suggest is that if, if someone is looking for an interesting project for themselves or to build something they might like to share, the ability to build some notebooks in SageMaker and then share those out with with a larger community means that if someone wanted to build tutorials about how to use Python with AWS in different ways, maybe you pick the S3 APIs or the EC2 APIs or the recognition APIs, you could build a really nice tutorial step-by-step in SageMaker, intersperse your code with, with nice, lucid explanations of, of what, you're, what you're teaching, what you're exploring, and then share those out. I think it'd be a, a really neat way to, to learn SageMaker and then share what you learned in a way that a lot of people all around the world could get access to. So kind of it's throwing a out idea. A, and a couple of things. Oh, go ahead. Throwing out a challenge there to our audience. Absolutely. Let's see what you come up with. And a, a couple of things that the SageMaker team have have built in, uh, a couple of new algorithms. First is the deep AR algorithm, which is useful for more accurate time series forecasting. So that's available now. And forecasting is something that a lot of people do. You know, if it's supply chain, web server traffic, network traffic, staffing levels, uh, you name it, it needs to be forecast. So this is a new algorithm that's useful for that. And the other one is the beautifully named blazing text, uh, which allows you to parallelize a lot of word uh, analysis and processing across both single instance CPUs and multiple CPUs as well. So you can get some really good performance improvements there. In fact, uh, we've seen some uh, performance improvements in the range of sort of 11 times uh, by using parallel processing, which is pretty nifty too. It, it does look like someone had a lot of lot of fun actually naming the various algorithms in that particular one. So we've got both Hogwild and Hogbatch, and then some really, really nice uh, charts that really show the the benefit of all this parallelization. And fairly interesting to read the text in the blog post that talks about the fact that with the parallelization comes the possibility for for some conflicts, but because of the, the broad size of the data set, that in practice, the, the, the parallel updates don't actually end up running into each other. So a re- really nice illustration of, of the, when you have that, all that big data, you can do effectively speculative processing, and the vast majority of the time, the, the updates aren't going to run into each other. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating domain, and that's the thing with uh, Amazon SageMaker is it makes it far more accessible than ever before. So um, take a look at that. Uh, another quick update of something existing but useful is a service called Amazon Inspector, and that's a really good service to check for common vulnerabilities and other security-related rules in a really dynamic way. And having a dynamic security posture is vital in any modern IT infrastructure. So the change is that uh, Amazon Inspector no longer requires a compatible kernel for rules packages like CVEs, etc., which means you can run it on a broader range of compatible operating systems. Um, if you want to do the runtime behavior analysis, you still do need to have a compatible kernel, but this kind of expands the accessibility, which is really, really nice. So just a, a nice improvement there to use things uh, a bit more broadly. That's right. Now, Jeff, there's a, a, there's a service I know that you really like, uh, which I do too, uh, a little service called Amazon Aurora, and the team have been hard at work 
adding a few new improvements to that service. They absolutely have been. And one thing I like to always think about, when, especially when we talk about databases, is the value of APIs. So here we have the API to Aurora, which is MySQL queries. We keep that API consistent, but we've inside of Aurora, we have a lot of freedom to implement those APIs in different ways. And I think what we're seeing now, given that we've we've got the We've got Aurora built. We've got all of the, the basics in place. We're now exploring that freedom to re-implement inside of Aurora to figure out ways to to run at the, the world scale that our customers want to, this ability to do things like as, as we're, we're talking about, we're adding different kinds of query processing, this idea that you can enable both hash joins and batch scans, which are, which are both ways to run queries faster. I, I did a little bit of digging on this, and it turns out that if you want to use these new features, you need to turn on something called Aurora Lab Mode. So Aurora Lab Mode is where we debut brand new features. We invite our customers to go out and get some experience with them, give us some feedback and make sure that we have those those features really fine-tuned to meet customer needs before we put them in in the effectively the production side of Aurora. That's really nifty because it means you can choose different capabilities of the database in different parts of your environment too. So you may have a, a dev test environment or a performance-focused environment where you choose to select these features. Um, for example, uh, some of the performance increases here are for batch scans up to 1.8x uh, for in-memory queries. So some pretty meaningful performance improvements, but you get to choose, which is nice. That's right. And then uh, not to mention the 8.2x for for the... Um the hatch joins as well. That's true. That's even even better. <laughs> and, and and then there's there's a, the, the classic uh, two services better together, and that's Amazon Aurora. And now we support synchronous AWS Lambda functions as well, which is a pretty nifty design pattern to have available. It definitely is. And I was exploring this a little bit more. I think we actually need to talk to our doc folks and make sure that we're fully documenting the all the, the value of this. I, I think that we, we've we maybe understated this in our documentation. And we, we have what I would consider technically correct documentation. But I, I think that there's room to put about 50 really, really interesting examples behind this to show just how awesome all of it is. <laughs> Indeed. So, so just to demystify it a little bit, so uh, previously we announced asynchronous support for Lambda functions, but now this this is synchronous. So it kind of changes the domains in which this can fit if you want to, doesn't it? That's right. And so there, there's a, a very simple example in the documentation that simply shows invoking a Lambda function as the operator of a select. And so presumably that function would return a, a table of data. I believe that's just the scratching the surface, maybe barely even scratching the surface to like one micron deep of what you can do with this capability. Agree, agree. And you can embed these into stored procedures. You can do all kinds of stuff, of course, once you enter the Lambda world, which is uh, a, a pretty nifty thing. And one other thing I want to mention about Amazon Aurora is uh, there's now a preview of MySQL 5.7 compatibility. And this release of MySQL 5.7 includes things like JSON support, spatial indexes, which I know a lot of people want, uh, generated columns, and some pretty significant um, performance improvements uh, for various workloads. So this preview is available currently in US East North Virginia, US East Ohio, US West Oregon, and Canada Montreal regions. So you can Get your hands on that as well if you want to have a look at some of the new stuff. Absolutely. Now, some of these en and, enhancements. Um, uh, whilst we're on the, 
Oh, so so looking at some of these performance enhancements, my understanding is that some of these come about from the the MySQL code that we bring in, and others come about as a result of the implementation inside of Aurora. So I think our customers are getting, they're really getting the benefit of two parallel efforts to make things better and faster all the time. Yeah, it's kind of like twice the optimization uh, is is in play, which is a great thing, and I, and I do love the drop in compatibility. That's uh, like you said about APIs, that's a, a big deal, I think. And certainly, um, what, one of the other things I like is, uh, as, as much as we'd like to talk about some of the big big stuff in terms of things that can have a, a big change to to the way our customers operate, and we'll talk about some of those soon, is I like the really small changes. And one that caught my eye was uh, there's a service, the Amazon S3 inventory service. Um, the service team have included uh, a timestamp now which simply tells you the start time and date of when the report generation started scanning the bucket. Sounds kind of simple, doesn't it, uh, Jeff? But Certainly really important. simple, but I <laughs> can imagine that what happened is that we got some customer feedback that said this inventory report is almost there, but it's not as awesome as we'd like it to be, but please include a timestamp. And we did our best to listen and to learn and to respond. And then here we go. Exactly. And then, and that's why, you know, whenever I'm talking to customers, I encourage them, if you see big things, little things you think could be improved, made better, changed, pass that feedback on because because we pass it on. And, you know, I think, Jeff, you've had the same experience. You go talk to the service teams, the developers, the product teams, and they couldn't be more excited to build those uh, additional capabilities in and then see the delight from totally our customers. Totally true. In fact, one of the most interesting things that I do in Seattle is that we have a an entire wing of our of our Kumo building that ha- is called the EBC, the Executive Briefing Center. So probably several times per month, I'll go down there to meet with customers and I'll, I'll talk about my, my specialty is I talk about our leadership principles and our focus on innovation, but I also get a chance to collect feedback from customers. And even though that they'll have opportunities to meet with the service teams later in the day, I, 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 very, I love to sit and listen and learn from them about the, the ways that we can do a better job of meeting their needs. We pass that right along to the service teams. The service teams will either say, yep, that's on our list. We're working on it. Or they'll engage right away with the customer to to learn more to make sure that they're meeting the the precise customer need. But then later that maybe the customer comes back six months or, or so later, we can sit down in that same room and they'll say, well, last time we were, we were here, we asked for some features and we've already checked those off our list because we've been able to deliver on them. So we're able to close that that loop between I need something, we're aware of the need, we've implemented it, we've delivered it to customers. We can close that in in weeks and months rather than in years, which was just the, the norm just, just a decade or so when we were back in the era of shrink wrap software. Yeah, yeah, it's a good time to be a consumer of IT, that's for sure. And speaking of things that people want, one of the clearly the most progressive and interesting areas of IT is the area of, of serverless and AWS Lambda. And certainly in my experience, when customers start to use this uh, method of programming and delivering IT, it, it really is revolutionary. I mean, it's so much quicker, easier, cost-effective in the right use cases as well. And it really enhances the uh, ability to have a really short time to value. One of the other nice things is you can kind of use the language that you're familiar with. So if you're using Python, you keep using Python. If you're a Java person, you keep using Java. So two of the big announcements that happened recently is support for .NET Core 2.0 and Go or Golang, depends on 
you know, which side of the fence you want to talk about it on. But these are two pretty significant languages that our customers use, Jeff. So uh, let's maybe just touch on what this means for well, developers. I'm pretty excited about both of these. One of the things that I love about seeing the, the .NET support is this kind of closes a very, very long loop for me. Back before I came to Amazon, I actually worked on the Visual Studio team at Microsoft. And to now see that Visual Studio has the ability to allow developers to build code in Visual Studio and then push that up to Lambda kind of closes a Let's see, almost a 20-year loop for me. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's, no. that didn't take too long, did it? <laughs> it, it? It's great that we're partnering with Microsoft to make this available and to, to really see that. that and, and I know that a lot of developers, j- just like my, my kind of default application is Outlook because I spend so much of my day processing email, People that are lucky enough to get to write code all day, their default application is effectively an IDE such as Visual Studio. So their ability to to use everything that they've learned about that, perhaps for the last decade or more about building code, and they're now able to use all of that knowledge, all of that accumulated skill to build serverless functions and code is, is to me really neat. It is it is very cool. One of the things I like when I see developers starting to develop in this way is is the first comment is, wow, there's so much less I have to do to get my code up and running into production or into test and just going. It's like I'm really focusing on the business logic, not anything else. It's kind of like the dream we've had for a long time actually come real. It, it really is. <laughs> you get so cool. much of the messy stuff out of the way and you simply write functions, all of the other Overhead is gone. Write my function, attach it to the right events and, and data sources, and away you go. Exactly, and just go. So .NET Core 2.0 support and also Go support. So Go is a language that's really become popular, uh, very performance, quite neat and tight to code. So if you're a big fan of Go, uh, AWS Lambda is now a platform that you can use to mm-hmm. deploy that language as well. Uh, we're also seeing some 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 cool integrations into things like AWS Sam Local and GoFormation, et cetera. I, I so, think so. And I have to admit that I'm really way behind on modern programming languages. And I figure I've probably got time to learn maybe one more in the remaining time of my, my career. And buried deep on my bookshelf is a copy of the Go programming language, which it's only got nine other books on top of it. So maybe at some point I might actually get to that and be able to to write some Go code. <laughs> it could It could happen. Uh, you did mention GoFormation, which I did click on that link there. And GoFormation actually looks like another interesting project that probably worth a tweet or so. Just to, GoFormation is a, a Go library for working with CloudFormation and with SAM templates. Looks interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice sort of combination of the two. So again, what, what I like to see is where, where customers kind of scratch their own itch of saying, well, if I can combine these things and automate something, it's going to be better and releasing that out to the community. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that over and over. And I guess it's one of the strengths of having everything driven by by APIs and and CLIs and and those types of integrations. You can do- That's right. And because we're on the AWS Labs GitHub, all that code is out there. One thing that you you didn't have on your list that may be worth a really brief mention in this vein is that we recently put the, the source code for the Elastic Beanstalk documentation out on GitHub. And the idea is that if customers have ideas for improving the documentation, if they want to add some more samples, if they want to make corrections, they're 
perfectly now enabled to submit pull requests to the documentation. We actually, due to the way our internal documentation system works, there, there's something of a mirroring process that goes from our internal system out to GitHub and back. But the expectation is we're going to keep those two in very, very close synchronization. And so customers now have the ability to, to help to improve our documentation. That is very awesome. And I had no idea that it happened. So thank you for... Uh bring that to the table <laughs> there's always something new. oh there absolutely always is on. and i i sometimes think maybe our customers have to they're they're gonna have to start picking and choosing between all the different threads and features that we have of, of things that we're launching and build some more intelligent filtering tools and maybe have a, a person within the organization whose part-time job is simply keep up with with the different things that are of interest to that particular organization or development team and make sure that they don't miss something important. Because one, one thing that I do hear from time to time, first, customers love the fact that we're putting this continuous stream of, of features and innovation at, at their fingertips. They're a little bit worried sometimes about missing something important. Sometimes the feature is simply a, an incremental improvement to the way they're doing things. But sometimes something that looks like a feature to us turns out to be an actual radical change in the way that the customer can can solve their problem. So they're they're always on the lookout for for features big and small. Like maybe that that feature that we just talked about with the timestamp to the dev team that was maybe a couple lines of code to get that timestamp into the output. To the customer, to the consumer, that might have enabled a brand new use case that we were not even aware of. So w the, the full impact of some of the things we do is, is not always visible to us inside the organization. Mm, very true. It's a good point. And, and probably a good example of that is one of the services we just made available in three more regions. So Amazon Kinesis Data Firehose is, again, one of my favorite services because it's a really awesome way to just load streaming data into different data stores. So you can send data into Amazon S3, Amazon Redshift, Amazon Elasticsearch Service, and Splunk. So this is really useful for near real-time analytics and just moving lots of data around. So this service is now uh, available in US West North California, Asia Pacific Singapore, and the Asia Pacific Sydney regions. So three new regions, and it's now available globally around in nine different regions. So this is this is nice to get this capability Agreed. in the hands of more customers. If I could interject one small note here, I do often get questions from customers about why don't we simply launch every service in every region simultaneously? And I, I've wondered that myself. And so I went to some of the teams and asked them about wh why, what's the complexity? And it turns out that what the teams like to do is they like to launch something new in an initial set of regions to get some operational experience with the new systems. Because as, as when they put something new online, they're, they, they want to make sure that they have a full grasp of the way customers are going to make use of it. They want to understand when they have that production code out there. They want to get a good sense of where are the, the friction points, where are the, the pieces of the system that might raise more tickets or raise more alarms than, than necessary. They want to make sure they've done a, a few iterations of the engineering before they're ready to go global. Generally, the, the things that they're fixing are they're wholly internal. These are not, in almost all cases, they're not addressing issues that the customers see, but the teams are saying, let's build these services to be as low maintenance as possible before we go global with them. And they want to simply get that operational experience and get a little bit of, of, um, of not, not confidence. It, it's simply understanding the dynamic behavior of the system to before they're ready to go globally. And, and at the same time, the, these teams are also counting on customers to express 
and and kind of tell us their demand and say we're we're building apps in a particular region and we think we're ready for Amazon Kinesis data firehose. We we really actually take those customer requests and we tabulate them and we use that as as one of the indicators that say this particular region, this particular market, they are now effectively at a maturity point where they're ready for this particular service. So we we'd love to get that feedback from our customers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it is super important. It's always interesting when I'm talking to the service teams, you know, I can I can suggest till the cows come home where I think services should be, but they always say, well, which specific customers are Exactly right. <laughs> so, unless I'm bringing customer exactly names. Exactly right. And uh, again, if there was a, a customer responsibility in all of this, I would say that we are counting on our customers to speak up. If there is a, a need that we have not addressed, we want to hear from you. Please let us know. It, one more request was could could actually get to the to the tipping point that says now we now we understand enough about this market to move forward so if you need something never ever be shy about letting us know that you need it exactly exactly now one of my favorite things jeff is to talk about price reductions for our customers and it's 2018 it's a new year and effective january 1st there is already another price cut for our customers That's right. in this case for CloudWatch. And this is tiered pricing for VPC flow logs and other vendor logs. So we're not going to go through the numbers too much, but basically as your volume of usage increases, you get different levels of discounts ranging from 50% to 80% up to 90% uh, in every region. I think region, it's a big deal. And pretty exciting, when I look it? at price reductions for storage, what I find most exciting is that in contrast to the situation where a customer has bought their own storage, they've bought their own SSD or they've bought their own magnetic storage, they have actually fixed the cost per gigabyte of storage at the point when they made that purchase. When you're using a service like like CloudWatch Logs and you're storing those, the price for what you've already stored is going to be will be reduced over time. So instead of that, that fixed price you're stuck with, you can really count on AWS to continuously make your your storage more and more economical over time. I, and I think that's a maybe not fully appreciated aspect of the way cloud storage works. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's actually a really good point. Again, it's, it's about people understanding that there's a, a, a different model at play here. And, and I know when I would talk to customers years ago about price drops, they sort of almost didn't believe me. They're like, well, why are you dropping the price and aren't you going to keep them the same and that sort of stuff? I'm like, no, that's, you know, as we get more efficient and we can deliver the service more cheaply, we want to pass that saving on to you. And I think this is another great example of us uh, doing that on behalf of our customers. And it's an important thing for, I guess, customers to take their internal stakeholders, particularly procurement departments and the like, who kind of aren't used to this model. It's like, what do you mean you're going to drop the price? <laughs> you can't do that. It, it can like, be surprising. Well, yes, and sometimes customers money. will use the price reductions as an opportunity to reduce their overall spend on AWS. And that's totally fine. We're happy with that. On the other hand, a lot of them look at this and say, this is an opportunity to use AWS more aggressively in some way. So they might say, well, maybe we used to keep our logs around for a month. But with this new pr- new price reduction, we can keep logs around for a year or even more than that. So we're, we're enabling new use cases. So people shouldn't simply look at the, the pr- price reduction and say, oh, great, I saved some money. They should look at this and say, what can I do now that it's a lot less expensive to store my logs? So get a bit strategic on that. Exactly. I can do more. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So a couple more things we're going to cover. One is a, a small but useful thing and one is a pretty big thing. So first, uh, Amazon EC2 Elastic GPUs now support OpenGL 4.3. So this is something you can add on. You just need to stop and start your instance and you get the new driver automatically, uh, which means you get a bit more capability, more, more capacity. And again, uh, I guess, Jeff, this is an example of, you know, versus buying your own or using the elastic ones. The elastic ones. That's right. They stay modern for longer, for longer. And you might have situations where you only need the GPUs for part of the lifetime of your application. So with the elastic GPUs, you have this ability to attach them when needed. But at the point when you launch your instance, run your code for a while. And if you, if you then, maybe you only need GPUs at, at uh, on afternoons or weekends or end of month, something like that. Can't think of a great use case for that right now, but let's say there was one. This ability to to pay for them only during the time that you're using them is a lot more interesting than a situation where you've bought these these very expensive devices and they're sitting there under your desk unused for the majority of their lifetime. Yeah. One of the other use cases I see is where you think you're going to need GPU and you go kind of down a particular pathway and then when you sort of step back, you say, this is not adding to anything, so I should probably stop using them. Uh, if you bought them, they're kind of like a sunk cost, whereas in this model, it's like stop instance, detach it's like elastic a very GPU and get on with It's a dynamic life. form of late binding where you, you make this decision about what hardware you need at the point when you're running the code rather than very early in your development lifecycle. Exactly, exactly. So the lucky last thing we're going to talk about today is – a service or a new service with a familiar name. So this is AWS Autoscaling. Now, I'm guessing that most of our listeners are very familiar with EC2 Autoscaling, and certainly it's a service that uh, we've known and loved for a long time. This is AWS Autoscaling. Now, as the man who literally wrote the blog, uh, tell us about uh, okay, what so this service is and Before how. we launched this, we had auto-scaling features for a number of different parts of AWS. We had auto-scaling for EC2. We had it for ECS. We had it for Spot Fleets. We had it for DynamoDB. And we had it for Aurora. So each of those services had their own auto-scaling aspect. That was It was essentially, I, my understanding is there was a lot of common code inside, but it was really up to the customer to set each of those auto-scaling systems up independently. So what we wanted to do is make it a bit easier for customers to get started with auto-scaling, because we, we do think it's something that is of, of a great benefit to many different kinds of applications. So with AWS auto-scaling, you can think of this as really a, a better interface and control system to all of the auto-scaling features of those services that I just mentioned. So it's gonna help you to identify all of your auto-scalable resources, and then it's going to let you pick and choose the set, the effectively the, the types of resources that you would like to be able to scale. And then it's going to help you decide which kinds of scaling policies and plans you'd like to put into place for, for each of those types of resources. So you, you actually get four different choices or, or strategies, as we call them. You can optimize for availability. You can balance availability and cost. You can optimize for cost, or you can set your own custom values for basically for when you'd like to scale up and to, to scale down. So once you do this and you go ahead and say create the plan, it's going to put into place all of the auto-scaling policies to implement the, the selection that you made. And, and I like the fact that we've got those policies because often, particularly with the, the, I guess, the older iterations of auto-scaling, 
you kind of had to figure out what the metrics were and how they work for your particular use case based on those types of goals. Where here's got kind of more of a, a goal-oriented setting. We say, you know, I want availability or I want cost optimization, make it happen. And the, and the system does that whilst not losing that That's flexibility. Right. One thing worth pointing out about this is to. that it does work on CloudFormation stacks. So when you decide to scale something, you point it at a CloudFormation stack. But it also turns out that behind the scenes, every Elastic Beanstalk app, when you launch an Elastic Beanstalk app, you're starting that through a CloudFormation stack. So you can scale either CloudFormation stacks or Elastic Beanstalk apps. And the, the same model applies to both. Very cool. And and this applies to things like uh, EC2 autoscaling groups, EC2 spot fleets, ECS tasks, DynamoDB tables, DynamoDB global secondary indexes, and Aurora replicas as well. And also, this is available now in US East, North Virginia, US East Ohio, US West Oregon, EU Ireland, and Asia Pacific Singapore, and more will come. And uh Jeff, highly complicated question. What does this service cost? Uh, it costs absolutely nothing. You pay only for the resources that you create and you consume, and then you also pay for any CloudWatch alarms that it creates. So I like thing. to think of this. This is there's a, a really neat vision for this service that the like almost every part of AWS the team puts together a roadmap that really says this is what we're starting with and this is where we're going to go over time. I was lucky enough to be able to take a, a peek at that roadmap. And this is a gigantic step forward, but my sense is this is really just just really getting started with making it easier and easier for customers to auto-scale their applications. That's a, it's, a, it's a great way to help bring elasticity to your environment. And with any application, the vast majority benefit from some form of elasticity. So this uh, definitely makes it easy to get there. Hey, Jeff, uh, we've covered a lot today. So thanks so much for coming on the show again. And uh, it's good to get the band back together. It's been a lot of fun. We should actually do this again. Now that we're maybe we can get the rhythm back and uh, happy to do, do more this year. Absolutely. We'll make it happen. Thanks again. Been my pleasure. Thanks so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at Amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.